Welcome to this episode in our podcast series looking at the approach of global financial regulators to non-financial misconduct and whistleblowing. I'm Sarah Cody, a counsel in Linklater's financial regulation practice and a contentious regulatory specialist. I'm joined today by two colleagues from our Amsterdam office. I'm Bas Jennen, a partner in the Linklater's financial regulation practice in Amsterdam. And I'm Leonard van der Ende, a managing associate in Linklater's financial regulatory practice in Amsterdam as well. In the show notes and on the Linklater's website, you'll find our global review of the role that non-financial misconduct is playing in the assessment of suitability of individuals to work in financial services and of whistleblowing requirements. In this latest episode of our podcast series that accompany the publication, we're focusing on the Netherlands. We're going to examine the Dutch framework for approving and certifying individuals in financial services and where non-financial misconduct fits within that framework. We will focus on individuals working at a financial services firm and not on their shareholders, for which separate requirements may apply. We'll also step through Dutch whistleblowing arrangements and look at some illustrative examples just to bring the topic to life. So let's first step through the framework for approving and certifying individuals and see where non-financial misconduct fits in. Boz, let's start with you. In the UK, individuals are assessed on the basis of their fitness and propriety to work in financial services. So this is generally where we see non-financial misconduct being relevant. Is there something similar in the Dutch framework? Yes, there is, Sarah. The Dutch regulators have a strong focus on governance, behaviour and culture within financial institutions. Their aim is to detect risky and unethical behaviour at an early stage and take action to prevent risk from materialising and cause actual problems. Within the regulatory regime, we have seen a shift towards a more integral assessment of risks, including non-financial risks, such as board dynamics and effectiveness, behavior and culture. The regulators look at board's decision-making, leadership and communications. The Dutch regulators updated their enforcement policy last year. It has now been made explicit that behavior and culture elements are taking into account when setting their supervisory approach towards the firm and deciding on enforcement strategies. There isn't a clear regulatory definition of non-financial misconduct, but various regulatory rules directly or indirectly address individuals' behavior. In addition to the general concept of sound and controlled business operations, there are really two key requirements for individuals to bear in mind. There's suitability and there's integrity. The rules are laid down in the Dutch Financial Supervision Act and elaborated upon in underlying regulations and a joint policy rule published by the Dutch regulators. That's really interesting. So can you tell us a little bit more about each of those? Well, on integrity, here we're looking at the intentions, actions and history of the individual that may get in the way of them adequately carrying out their duties. And this includes criminal, financial, supervisory and tax related antecedents. Integrity assessments cover qualities such as responsibility, respect for the law, honesty, openness, sincerity, prudence and discretion. An integrity assessment relates to the individual, irrespective of the function in which the individual will operate. This means that no reassessment takes place if the individual switches positions or moves to another firm, unless facts or circumstances have occurred that impact the person's integrity. And for suitability, the emphasis is a bit different because the suitability assessment is linked to a specific position. So on the one hand, we have the position, and this should take into account the type of the firm and its size, complexity and risk profile, as well as the composition of the board as a whole. 
And on the other hand, we have knowledge, skills and professional conduct of the individual, primarily based on the individual's education and work experience. The relevant regulator will assess whether the individual is fit to fulfill the specific function. And this may include competences like authenticity, judgment, decisiveness, communication, leadership, teamwork, and external awareness. So it sounds to me like non-financial misconduct should well be relevant to suitability as well as integrity, depending, I guess, on the type of conduct in question. That's absolutely right. So let's imagine a case where we have a director of an insurance brokerage who's found to have made multiple fraudulent insurance claims over a period of years. So things like home contents insurance policy claims for burglary and motor vehicle insurance claims for theft and accidents that didn't occur. Well, depending on the circumstances, this behavior will likely qualify as a relevant antecedent, which may in any event trigger a reassessment of the individual's integrity. The individual's history may in this case show a lack of the integrity necessary to act as day-to-day policymaker of an insurance broker. There is, however, not always a clear distinction between integrity and suitability. Okay, so those are the criteria. Um, Can we now have a look at who applies them and in what regulatory context? So, so Leonard, who are the relevant regulators? Well, there are three regulators. Uh, First, there is the Dutch Central Bank, or DNB. Then there is the Dutch Authority for the Financial Markets, or the AFM. And finally, you have the European Central Bank, the ECB. The Dutch Central Bank, uh, DNB, is the prudential supervisor of the, and the primary uh, regulator of certain types of firms, such as insurance companies and banks. The ECB is responsible for the supervision of significant banks. The AFM is their conduct supervisor and the primary supervisor of other types of firms, such as investment firms and fund managers. So in a lot of the jurisdictions we surveyed, including actually here in the UK, the framework in place contemplates pre-approval by the regulator for the most senior individuals and for some individuals below that level, certification by the firm. Is there a similar model in the Netherlands? Uh, yes, there, there is a somewhat similar model in the Netherlands. Um, it is important to know that in the Netherlands, companies typically have a two-tier board structure uh, consisting of a management board, which is mandatory, and a supervisory board, uh, which depending on the type of firm is optional. Uh, However, uh, it is also possible to have a one-tier board structure whereby executive and non-executive directors sit on the same board. So at the top of a financial institution, you have the so-called day-to-day policymakers, which are the management board members in a two-tier structure or the executive directors in a one-tier board structure. And then you may have the supervisory board members or the non-executive directors. The regulator, so that will be the DNB, the ECB, or the AFM, depending on the type of firm, will assess and approve prospective appointments to these roles in advance. The suitability and integrity requirements are ongoing requirements and do not just apply upon appointment. Uh, finally, persons may be reassessed if reasonable grounds arise. So that sounds to me like the closest parallel to the UK's senior management functions. That's right. Um, and then at the next level, There's the so-called second-tier senior management of banks and insurance companies. This includes, for example, the management positions directly below the management board level that are responsible for employees that perform work that may materially impact the firm's risk profile. 
such as senior managers of the risk compliance, legal and internal audit functions. For these individuals, integrity screening is a joint effort of the firm and the regulator. The firm will first assess the integrity of the candidate and submit the outcome to DNB. DNB will then conduct its own supplementary integrity screening, whilst the suitability screening is the firm's responsibility alone. Please note that the regulator can always do their own suitability screening if necessary and review a firm's screening process. So this sounds a bit more like a cross between some of the functions that we would designate as senior management functions and our material risk takers. So this hybrid setup of joint screening for integrity is a little bit different to what we're used to here in the UK, where we only have regulatory pre-approval for senior managers and then firm certification for certified persons. Well, yes. Um, however, there, there is one more category in the Netherlands that's closest to the UK's certified persons category. Uh, that category is for integrity sensitive positions. These include management positions directly below the management board and other positions with authority that present a substantial risk to sound business operations. For these positions, the firm itself is required to conduct integrity screenings and the regulator generally isn't involved in this screening but this stems from the firm's obligation to control its business effectively. So the regulator can still scrutinize a firm's policies and procedures for these integrity screenings. These positions don't have an explicit suitability requirement, but of course a well-controlled firm is expected to only appoint individuals to roles if they are suitable. So in the UK, we have a system of individual conduct rules which apply to pretty much everyone working in financial services, save for those in ancillary roles. So these require individuals to act with integrity and due skill and care, amongst other things. Thus, handing back to you, is there anything equivalent to this in the Netherlands? Well, in the Netherlands, we have a banker's oath. It's principle-based and broadly formulated. The individual swears to follow the established code of conduct. This code of conduct requires the individual to work with care and integrity. This includes honesty, reliability, and the prevention of conflicts of interest. It also requires the individual to put the customer's interests first, to abide by the law, not to breach confidentiality, to be honest and open, and to be responsible for the society's trust in the firm. A significant proportion of employees are obliged to take the oath, and firms must ensure that they do so within three months of starting their role and breaches of the Code of Conduct can be reported to an independent disciplinary board. Okay, so I'm going to go for another scenario just to bring this all to life a little. So I'm thinking now of a case where it's been discovered that a managing director at a bank has been caught substantially underpaying their taxes for several years by concealing and underreporting their income and assets. The managing director has settled with the tax authorities and avoided prosecution. What might the impact of that be? Well, Let's assume the managing director is a day-to-day policymaker. So they're subject to ongoing suitability and integrity requirements. I know we'll come on to the notification obligations later, but it's worth noting here that the firm is likely to be required to notify the regulator because the conduct pertains to the integrity and suitability assessment that the regulator has previously conducted. The conduct likely qualifies as a tax-related antecedent that is relevant in the context of the integrity screening. The regulator may then conduct a reassessment. This usually consists of desk research and an interview. And there's a substantial risk here that the managing director may be found to lack integrity because their actions have demonstrated dishonesty and deception. 
Thanks for that. Now, we've mentioned um, firms' own controls for addressing non-financial misconduct. Um, Leonard, can you tell us what regulatory requirements are relevant to this? Sure. Firms are required to ensure sound and controlled business operations with adequate policies, procedures and measures. Uh, This includes, for example, preventing criminal offences or other serious breaches of the law by employees of the firm. It also includes preventing other acts that are so contrary to generally accepted standards that they could seriously damage the confidence in the firm or the financial market. This is a broad category that potentially includes a wide variety of non-financial misconduct risks, especially if it concerns behavior that is not an isolated incident but is more widespread throughout the firm, as the question should always be whether a firm has taken sufficient preventive measures and adequately responds to misbehavior. Of course, incidents may always occur. Another example is that under the AML Act, firms are required to screen their employees with a view to money laundering and terrorism financing risks. And are firms required to report non-financial misconduct incidents to their regulator? Well, these obligations are broadly formulated and the reporting cannot be done anonymously. However, this won't cover all non-financial misconduct. It will only cover conduct or events that pose a serious threat to the firm's sound business operations. This means that an assessment needs to be made on a case-by-case basis. Separately, as mentioned before, where the regulator has previously screened an individual for integrity, the firm must notify the regulator of any material changes to information that has previously been submitted. This could include incidents or other types of conduct that would qualify as an antecedent for the purpose of the integrity screening. Okay, so let's take another example then. Let's think of a case where the head of compliance at a bank has behaved inappropriately towards a junior team member. So they had insisted on taking a taxi home with a junior after a client event. Um, Later, maybe that head of compliance had joked with other team members that they were lucky to have gone home together. And that the junior has said that the head of compliance has often gone for lunch with them, just the two of them, ostensibly to have career conversations, but that careers didn't really come up and that the meetings had made that junior feel very uncomfortable. What might the implications of that be? Uh, As a head of compliance is within a bank's second tier management, the integrity and suitability requirements apply on an ongoing basis. Uh, This behaviour that you just mentioned could be relevant to the suitability of the head of compliance, particularly considering the nature of his function and potentially also on the integrity. The firm will need to assess both. If it imposes disciplinary sanctions, then it will need to inform the relevant regulator, as this would qualify as an antecedent for the person concerned. Thanks, Leonard. Let's move on now to look at whistleblowing arrangements. Um, So we found that various jurisdictions implement channels to make disclosures to regulators, requirements for firms generally, not just in financial services, to have whistleblowing channels and requirements specific to financial services. And I know across Europe, the whistleblowing directive has had to be incorporated into national law. Well, Sarah, the same is true in the Netherlands. There are requirements specific to banks and CRR investment firms. These firms are obliged to have internal whistleblowing schemes. They must protect against retaliation, discrimination and other unfair treatment. And they must protect the whistleblower's confidentiality as well as the personal data of the whistleblower and other individuals who are the subject of the report. There are also whistleblowing channels directly to the financial regulators. Both the DMB and the AFM have an incidence reporting desk to report wrongdoings by firms. 
Then there are the requirements applicable to all companies with more than 50 employees, not just financial services companies. These are in the Dutch House of Whistleblowers Act. Such companies must have a procedure for reporting internal wrongdoings. Whistleblowers must not be disadvantaged by making a report. And there's a disclosure channel directly to the Dutch Whistleblowers Authority. This can only be used after first making a report internally and if there is no external reporting desk available. So this means that the Dutch Whistleblowers Authority may refer financial services whistleblowers to the DMB or the AFM but it still provides a safety net. So if the DMB or AFM does not process a report, then the whistleblower can report to the Dutch Whistleblowers Authority. So let's take our final worked example then. Let's imagine a scenario where we have two traders at a bank of equal seniority. One has unfortunately physically assaulted the other at a work social event and has been charged with a criminal offence. It's then subsequently emerged that the victim two months earlier had complained to the firm's whistleblowing hotline about workplace bullying by the perpetrator. A new compliance team member spoke directly to the senior manager of the victim and the perpetrator about the complaint. The senior manager agreed to deal with the issue, but in fact had done nothing. Now, putting aside the issues that this might raise about the perpetrator's integrity, uh, what do you think the consequences would be from a whistleblowing perspective? Well, here, the regulator may assess the firm's internal policies and procedures and culture relating to this sort of undesirable and potentially criminal behavior, as well as the adequacy of the firm's whistleblowing scheme, including protecting the confidentiality of whistleblowers and its arrangements to assess and handle whistleblower reports. There is a risk here of formal enforcement action, including remedial measures and an administrative fine. And assuming that the senior manager is a day-to-day policymaker who has been screened for integrity and suitability, there is a risk that the regulator would find that the manager is not suitable to fulfill their function. The regulator might then take action aimed either at their dismissal or, if this was considered too severe, at measures to improve the manager's suitability in this respect. That's really helpful. Thank you. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank my guests on this episode, Boss and Leonard, for their insights into the ways in which Dutch regulators are grappling with these issues. If you're interested in reading more, then on linklatest.com, you can find our full publication on the approach to non-financial misconduct and whistleblowing in 12 key financial centres, including the Netherlands. Do remember to share and subscribe to this podcast feed for more insights from us. Thank you for listening and goodbye.